So today's guest, um, uh, I'm happy to call him a friend of mine, is uh, Michael Bennett, uh, a film director and uh, writer, and somewhat of a, I guess, I, I wouldn't say social crusader, but he ha- he picked up on one particular, um, um, I guess you could call it a crusade though, for, for Tana Porter, um, yeah. the, the guy who was wrongfully convic- convicted of raping and murdering um, Susan Burdett. So he's really locked into that and um, he's become a good friend with Tana and thankfully as I'm sure people are aware Tana was released yeah. um, from prison after 20 years and so he's written a book about that and he's he first got involved with that um, making a documentary about it and, and sort of he got to see the footage from the interviews with the police and was like oh my god this mm. kid was royally fucked. It reminded me a little bit of um, that making a murderer Series. Exactly, and and I, sort of I, I I was going to mention that to him so at the time, I. but the flow of the the conversation was going. But do you know that 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 kid that was um, Stephen Avery's nephew Brendan has been released yeah. this week? Yeah, um, because and he had a a similar brain injury, and I think he may have even had um, fetal alcohol syndrome, um, the same thing that Tana suffers Wouldn't from. Surprise me. So potentially, and and he's been released because of you know false confession was dragged right. out of him by the police, and that documentary was part of his release wasn't it it helped it helped, it helped like people see it from a different perspective and right i put, believe so yeah, yeah. I, i'm sort of guessing that as i say it yeah uh, but yeah. i think that um that false confession thing is fascinating you know mm. and I, I remember reading or hearing somewhere maybe a po- probably hearing because i don't do much reading these days i listen to <laughs> right. mostly podcasts or watch the things on youtube but hey we um, like podcasts yeah we love podcasts it's reading of the future <laughs> <laughs> Lazy man's reading. We could be the Shakespeare of 400 years from now. <laughs> Talk it up. <laughs> um, about how, you know, witness, um, you know, court witnesses that are really unreliable. Mm. They, you know, people are asked to remember things. And memory is very, very unreliable yep. when it comes to um, people being witnesses in court cases. I, I had um, uh, many, many, many years ago, I, I worked for a bank temporarily for about a year. Mm. And... Uh, one day, well, every day we had to count all the money in the bank, right? Um, and we weren't allowed to leave until it was all counted and um, and and balanced. Um, and one day, two thousand dollars was missing, and so we had to stay and recount and recount and recount. Mm-hmm. And we all knew who took it as well. And this person had had got had somehow convinced the manager to let her go, and it was all you know. It was all bullshit. So someone in the bank actually took it. One of the staff members took it. Yeah. Oh my god. But but like we we just knew who, that that it happened. We just knew yeah. for a number of reasons. Um, but of course they needed evidence and they needed to to go through the motions properly. Mm. So these these two people were brought into the branch to investigate, and we all had to go into regular meetings where they for two or three hours straight would just hound you, right? Trying to trying to sort of break you. Right. You know, if you were the liar, you know your your lies would start to collapse, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, now, I mean, I obviously knew within myself that I was I had nothing to do with it, mm. um, and I'm a pretty strong-minded person. But sitting there for a few hours, having someone talk at you like you're guilty, it yeah. fucks with you. Right. And I'm not suggesting that I wasn't anywhere near giving a false confession or anything, but right. But it just it was quite a a, a horrible 
you know, experience. It was like a roller coaster ride sort of thing. Yeah. And I remember being destroyed by it, like emotionally destroyed by it at the end of each of these meetings. Right. So I can only imagine what it must be like if it's something far more serious and you're going through days and days and days, months and months and months. And any, yeah. I mean, fucking hell, find yourself sitting in, in a prison cell. Yeah, that's right. Jesus, you know. And they say that um, one of the other fascinating things about that that kind of thing is when people who who are guilty who have been caught, mm. they're the ones who sleep well in prison. Right. Like they they're like, well, it's over now. I've been caught. Right. Um, so and, and but those ones who don't and who are pacing the prison cell and back and forth, like my life is fucked. What happened yeah. to me? Yeah. Um, I didn't do this. Um, and that's a way. Some sometimes a way that people, you know, the police can tell. You know, this kid had nothing to do with it or whatever. Yeah. Um, I, it must I, happen a lot. I bet it does. I really yeah. love those um, those new shows that have come through. You know, the real um, life, uh, not not detective. What are they? The real life crime shows. Um, All right. There's another one, The Jinx. Have you seen that? No. Which is similar to How to Make a Murderer. Oh, yeah. But it's a, about um, a guy called Robert Durst, who is um, a very wealthy. Um, well, rather, his family's wealthy. They own half of Manhattan, sort of. Wow. Um, in terms of real estate, um, commercial real estate. And this guy has, as it turns out, if you watch the the um, six part sort of series, is probably um, a mul- um, um, serial murderer. You know, he's killed people around him. His, his, well, he, right. he definitely was found um, to have killed a flatmate of his or someone that lived in the same um, building as him. And uh, it's just a crazy, crazy story. But he, there was a, in, in part of the thing, made my jaw hit the ground when I was watching it. He was being interviewed um, by the filmmakers for this documentary. Yeah. And they caught him out on a thing. I, I wouldn't spoil it because it was one of the great moments of the show. I, I won't say what it was, but mm. um, he was wearing his mic and he went to the bathroom and he started talking to himself and going, well, that's it. You've been caught. Um, you know, wow. what, and he's like, what the hell did you do? And then it's almost like he's having a conversation with himself and he goes, another voice, same voice, obviously, but he, in a different sort of tone goes, well, you killed all of them, obviously. And it was like, holy shit. One of the, it was incredible. And this is the, the the wealthy guy. Do you think this is like yeah. a power play? Like removing people who are in his way sort of thing? Oh, absolutely. Right. Yeah, no doubt. He right. he just removed people who were inconvenient. Yeah. Inconveniencing him. Well, he's like a, a, a TV, like 80s TV show bad guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know they were actually real. Well, let's start, the whole thing starts with him being caught, with, as I say, with the, he was on the run and yeah. hiding um, out somewhere. And his neighbor in, in the complex he was living in was murdered and found dead. Right. And he got called in for it. But he was, it's really weird. He was dressing as a woman at the time, pretending to be someone else, this guy, um, the murderer guy. And they took him in. And the police chief or the sheriff or whatever, um, during the, the court system, or the court process went, yeah, well, uh, look, put a half a million dollar bond on the guy because he's living in a hovel, really. Right. Put a half a million dollar bond. He's not going to go anywhere. He makes a phone call to his rich family in New York. Hey, I need half a million dollars. They paid it and, and everyone was like, how the hell did he get half a million dollars? And then he disappeared. You know? So it was just crazy. But anyway, we got yeah. off the subject. Uh, Michael, what, what was the subject? Michael Bennett. Oh, that's right. Our guest. <laughs> Our guest today. Um, and we talked a little bit about the, the psychology of some of these things. And mm. he probably was the perfect person to talk to Tainer Porter at the time um, because he, he studied psychology, yes. as he talks about. And... Um, you know, and as a filmmaker and a writer, I think that psychology, as he says, has probably helped him. Yeah, has probably helped him along the way. 
But I mean, yeah, that, that, and there's that. Um, we talked a little bit with Michael about cereal, which is another one of those things. Certainly, cereal, the first one was the was better than the second one that's been released. But that's a like a podcast documentary, right? Um, about a, a true life crime. Mm. Um, and because of that, you know, you're talking about how arts affecting life in a way. Yeah, that um the the subject of that first one serial uh, series has now had his case relooked at right and, and i think is in the process of going through a court case again yeah um, and this yeah. was a, a teenager who apparently killed his high school girlfriend or something and, and, and i think um in regards to the arts and its potential for um you know provoking conversation and that sort of thing um i i don't you know i don't like the idea of of implementing any kind of rule that says we must take away anything frivolous and make everything you know heavy and yeah. loaded with with um agenda that's that's never what i would i would um want um but it's just it seems like such a, an amazing thing that is available to us and it almost seems like we're afraid in the entertainment world uh to really go there a lot of the time yeah you know, artists to are, get into the serious and, and, and maybe stuff. it's still yeah maybe it's the way the industry works and it's quite difficult to kind of get on side and get the breaks and things like that. It's it's a lot easier if you've got a good feel good summer song, well, sort of thing. Uh, and I mean, is that what you're talking about? There is that the dumbing down of um, I think so, yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. I, but I think people, that, I can sense that's changing, man. People mm. want the gritty stuff, the stuff that's a little bit more thought provoking or um, maybe a bit more complicated that you have to think about. Yeah, you know, um, a thinking man's. I think of, so. Yeah, like you look at Snarky Puppy. That's a really complicated kind yeah. of stuff. But people are starting to love that sort of thing. And not that long ago, they were trying to to um to make computer systems to to anticipate what music was going to be popular. Yeah. Can you imagine the computer system coming back with? There's going to be a a, a type of music that's like a weird fusion of jazz, um, you know, world music, yeah, um, rock, blues, you know, uh -huh. a band called Snarky Puppy. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. No. And yeah. yet they're Grammy winners now. And and I'm I'm stoked that that's sort of happening. I, I like yeah. the the things that make that provoke thought and make you think well there are a lot of aspects of of our life and culture and society that need to be challenged mm. you know i think it's a really positive thing i think you're right i, I think I, I read an article recently about anti-intellectualism in new zealand um right. which is a very controversial article um, but I, I really enjoyed it and i enjoyed the points it made and the argument that they made was the difference between being academic and being an intellectual mm. um the way that this person defined an intellectual was someone that instead of immediately reacting emotionally or reacting with action was someone who first thought about it. Right. Which is, if you think about it, if you think about it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you think about thinking about it, yeah. um, you know, how many times do people out there read something, go, what the fuck? And they go off into some sort of rant yeah. and they haven't even considered it. Right. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. I mean, and I think that's, that's one more good example of how we're we're getting we're challenging things now mm. we're starting to question it maybe it's not okay to be this idiot kiwi bloke fucking yeah the lad drinking. culture yeah. Eh? Yeah. yeah um emotionally unintelligent checked out wife beating fucking moron you know <laughs> you, know? <laughs> <laughs> you know maybe that's not you cool have thought about this <laughs> <laughs> um i think it's good i mean i mean i think the new the new formats we have for television like netflix and things like that the positive thing from that um, is it's challenging everything. I mean, now we can decide what we're going to watch. Yeah. You know, we're not sitting there watching something because it's the only thing on a Thursday night. Look, you know what I mean? I hear what you're saying. And the yeah. reason I can hear what you're saying is because I look after my hearing. Right. 
And uh, how do you go about doing that, being a musician? My hearing is a bit a bit rooted today, and so is my voice. I don't know if I sound flat or not, but I, I sound I feel I feel jaded. Um, I I did a show last night, and it was a relatively big show, and we had to um, between sound check and the show, we had to the, the gear went on the stage for sound check, off the stage, yeah, and then and then it had to be thrown back on the stage like right before we played, um, which is a it happens. It's, you know, it's more of a television thing, isn't it? <laughs> Where your gear gets struck. Yeah. But see, what, what's the point of a sound check? Because all the mics will be in different places. The yeah, yeah, everything's slightly different. That's right. right. Um, I mean, with digital desks, of course, you set you can save all the presets and things. Um, yeah. And that's that's better. But um, yeah, you're right. As soon you're as you're standing in a different position on stage, it's all slightly. yeah, exactly. And then there's a large group of people in front of you, and it changes the sound of the room. And yeah, yeah. and yeah, exactly. As, as soon as I went to sing. It's like, oh, great, the monitor sounds different. Can't, yeah. really, can't really hear myself. Um, um, there are a number of reasons that I'll spare the listeners, but usually I wear in-ear monitors. Mm-hmm. And on this particular show, it was just practically going to be a lot easier if I just used the stage monitors. Right. Um, so, um, unfortunately, the in-ear monitors were packed up and put back in the box. And But then I had um, uh, anyone who's ever played at Vector knows how shitty that room is, and it's, and it's hard to get anything to sound good. <laughs> um, and so... Where where I'm struggling to hear my vocals, and um, it's a relatively energetic um, performance, and I'm, I have to sing hard just to, just to hear. I have to lean right into the mic and sing loud just to mm. try and you know hear my pitch. Yeah, um, and it just beat the shit out of me. And of course, my ears weren't protected from this right. mountain of sound. Yeah, and these day and, and um, this morning, I feel like I've been in a boxing match. You know? Yeah. Um, and, and you know, reinforces to me that you know in-ear monitors are, are important. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. And 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 acoustics hearing is our um, sponsor today. I thought mm-hmm. I'd, I thought I'd set it up that different way rather than just reading the copy. Yeah, I mean, because this is context, a, 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 you know. case in point, right? Yeah, exactly. Why you should be wearing them whenever you can. Yeah, and I'm and I've used them for so many years now. You I mean I I love having the the um, the sound that I want. You know, I can. I can mix everything the way that I want it, yeah, and be as fussy as I want because it doesn't affect anybody. Yeah, like like you know, uh, when you're, you know, on stage and you want more um, of your vocals in the monitor, the engineer's dealing with other problems. Like that means more of the drums will bleed into the vocal mic, which is causing problems in other areas. So there's all these domino effects. Yeah, when you've got in-ear monitors, none of that matters. Yeah, you know, you can have as much as you want. Right. At the same time, they're molded, and so they protect my hearing. So mm-hmm. I, at the end of a, a show, usually these days, I don't feel that beaten up by it. Right. Um, so, I mean, I'm a strong advocate for So how can our listeners get that feeling at the end of a show? Well, they can go and get, um, what, what did you say last time? A, a, a laser in their air hole. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and go and get your, your 3D digital, digital scan. And um, they send that off to the states, yep. and they'll send you back um, uh, custom molded uh, in-ear monitors. Mm-hmm. You can choose a different type of. Uh, I always I always fuck up this bit. What do you call it? The different type of EQ drivers. F- the different drivers, exactly. Yep. Um, you can get different drivers to suit your role as a musician. Yeah. And um, what are the drivers for for what role? So there's a two, a three, and a six. Uh, yeah, something yeah, like okay. that. Yeah, we, we won't yeah. go into that because they it's, haven't. It's given just us about the... frequencies. It's just yeah. about the frequencies. So, like, you know, obviously the the, the frequencies a singer wants is going to be slightly different to the sure. frequencies a bass wants. So okay. it's just designed for different roles. Yeah. Um. Um. But they 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 are relatively 
um, inexpensive compared to um, you know the other versions of production you might need instead floor yep. monitors or whatever um, they they're definitely inexpensive um, when you compare it to the chance of losing your hearing and I can, and I can sort of speak to that personally if I can really quickly yep. my mum has suffered from hearing loss most of her adult right. life yeah and we recently got some um, some hearing aids for her yep and it sort of changed her whole outlook. You know, she can hear. She forgot the things that she couldn't hear anymore. Right. Yeah. And um, it's incredibly important that you look after your hearing because yeah. it affects your um, quality of life. So, well, I can't imagine losing the ability to listen to music. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Well, you can. You can. I'll spare you the copy today, but I think we've made our point. Yeah. Um, the website is www.acoustics.co.nz. A C O U S T I X.co.nz. Um, Thomas Mueller is the guy who runs the New Zealand um, division of Ultimate Ears, mm-hmm. and he is a, a great guy, great service, and um, he'll look after you. So, great. Yeah. All right. So um, I guess we should go to our... Yeah, let's jump into the um, conversation with Michael Bennett. It was one I was really looking forward to when he said he would agree to do it, um, and I met him when he did a documentary with Opshop yeah. um, about four years ago. Great guy. I'd never met him before, and I was so impressed by him. I thought he was such a, an easy guy to talk to. And so passionate and, yeah. and knowledgeable. Just a real, um, real genuine guy. Yeah, film director, writer, yeah. and uh, yeah, Michael Bennett, all-round good guy. Now let's do this! Don't give up your day job. Tell us a little bit about how you, what made you want to be a creative growing up in Reefton. Was that where you were born, or did you leave there quite early? Yeah, no, I was born in Repton, but left when I was really young. We went to Motueka. We were actually living in Nangahua Junction, and we left three days before the earthquake that destroyed our house. So, oh, um, so yeah, no, I grew up in, uh, in a little wee tiny place just outside of Motueka, which was, you know, I mean, it was kind of... It wasn't great in terms of a cultural life, but what it was great in terms of was an alternative. It was kind of, you know, Motuwek is the last refuge of the hippies, especially when I was growing up. I was, oh, right. A lot of my friends were in communes. and yeah. <laughs> So at a certain point, um, I guess I sort of walked away from being on the path. I was captain of the first 15 and uh, on the path to being ducks at school and things. And started hanging out much too much with my friends at Riverside Commune and started thinking about working our way on a trading boat to Europe and hanging out in cafes in Amsterdam and things. And oh, um, no. So just started to get exposed to a different way of thinking, I guess, yeah. which was good. Um, and, yeah, I don't know how that led to creativity. I, I guess a bunch of things kind of happened along the way. Um, um you know, I studied psychology first at university, which I still think is probably for what I do as a writer-director, probably the best degree that I've done. Right. Um, um, but, you know, even when I was studying psychology, I was always sneaking off to the library to you know, look at films and um, read film reviews. And, I, I mean, I, moving image was kind of always my thing, but I didn't right. really have a perception that you could make a living doing that kind of right. stuff. There no, yeah, I, yeah, the same thing. I didn't really realise that. Because if I had known that you could make a living as a filmmaker when I was growing, coming through after high school, I probably would have done that too. And I didn't really realise that until sort of Peter Jackson started making films that people were watching. Yeah, it's definitely not what your you know, careers advisor at school tells you about, I, I don't think. Yeah. And it's... Um, yeah, and I sort of, I mean, I, I guess I just stumbled into it more than anything. Like, I did my degree and I followed a girl to Australia and 
and I knew that I didn't want to be a psychologist. I, you know, I probably didn't have the patience or the, you know, um, uh, the strength of character to, I guess, deal with people's deep issues all day long. Deal with their shit. Yeah. <laughs> but I was deeply interested in their shit. Yeah. Like, right. um, yeah. Deeply interested. I mean, I, I, a big thing I really remember is that, you know, because my older brother did psychology, and I remember when I was 11 years old, he brought home a textbook on abnormal psychology. And and after that, I just spent, I gave up Mad Magazine completely and just <laughs> read this textbook on abnormal psychology. And I used had, to love Mad Magazine. So, yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> different kind of Mad Magazine. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Um, um, so, yeah, so in, in, so in Australia, um, I was kind of looking for what the hell I actually was going to do, and I had no idea. And just happened upon like a, a media studies sort of short short course and, and um, did a bunch of things, did some photography, did some journalism and it was all kind of interesting and creative but you know it didn't really resonate and then yeah. I vividly remember the first, uh, I had a couple of hours of screenwriting course and, and, and just those two hours, it was one of those light bulb moments, it was like you know this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, this, wow, okay. I get this, you know, yeah. writing images, telling stories about you know profound human journey and, yeah. and emotions through images. That, what and it what just led clicked. you to, to go into, um, um, to choose that course in the first place, what led you to that? I don't know, I, I guess, I mean because it was done. always in my head that I kind of loved films and I thought yeah, yeah and... Oh I meant the, the um, psychology side of things that ah yeah um i, I th- yeah i think it just was that becoming increasingly fascinated with right. how we tick and, and how we mm, yeah. and how we start ticking in weird ways and mm. and um you know i mean I, I sort of one of the things from the abnormal psychology textbook i will always remember is um this account of a guy who was in the milai massacre mm-hmm. and um this you know which is one of those kind of really unbelievable events that we're a bunch of good American kids from good families and good homes underneath the influence of a really powerful fucked up dude yeah did awful things right and they did awful things in Vietnam yeah Yeah. basically you know a uh, a platoon went to a village the village was not putting up any fight there was no no none of the enemy there at all and uh, the commander of the platoon said okay you have to shoot all these people, women, children, etc. And it was just one of those studies of, of the power of uh, authority, authority of, right. of, of following command. And, and you know, and the, this account of this guy who, you know, crying, his hands trembling as he did this awful thing. And, 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 and these people were driven by fear, was it? Or the, by manipulation? Or? Well, I mean, really, it's about obedience to authority, question, really. I mean, right. it's, yeah, it's... You know, like there's that famous uh, experiment that Milgram did, mm. who you know, which is the prisoners' experiment. Um, the prisoners' that? one year came next, but right. Mil- Milgram's one was was really kind of it was astonishing. He, he oh, is that the up, one with the doctor? The, electric, the doctor, electric, yeah, yeah. Oh, fuck that, yeah, yeah. Nah, man, that is evil and incarnate, right? Yeah, yeah, but explain it. It's incredible. It is. It's amazing that they they pulled. So he, he pulled people off the street. And said, "You've got to take part in an experiment. So you're, you're helping this guy on the other side of the glass wall learn. Right. He's got electrodes on him, and and you're going to ask him a bunch of questions. And if he gets the question wrong, you'll give him a little electric shock, and that'll help him learn. 
Right. And of course, the experiment was actually on the person giving the electric shock. The the person on the other side of the glass was a an actor, and um, so Milgram started the experiment going, and the and the actor on the other side of the glass would deliberately get questions wrong. Yeah. And so Milgram would say, "Okay, so he's really not doing very well. So you've got to up the electrical current, so he will learn better." And the current kept going up and up, and um, and the the actual subjects, the, the people who had been brought in off the street, would be going, I, I don't want to do this anymore, because the actor would be screaming, and, and, and Milgram would say, no, you've been paid, you've come here, this is an experiment, you, you have to, to keep do doing this. this. Yeah. And I can't remember the exact results, but it was something like 70% yep. of people I would go past right. the, the red line where it said danger, and something like... 50 or 40% would go, would keep on shocking after the actor stopped moving, wow. after he'd pretended to, to basically be unconscious, unconscious or, or Yeah. And, and yeah. that's all because some dickhead in a white lab coat told him to do yeah. it. So was Milgram <clears throat> also the, the, the prison experiment? Was that him or was this another? There was another one that sort of came out of that, yeah. Right, yeah. 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 Where you had a group of prisoners, oh, um, you know, subjects playing prisoners and subjects playing prison guards and how that um, sort of I guess authoritative um, structure, or if you like that dynamic, bore out with ordinary people off the street. Yeah, where yeah. The prisoners became less than human, subhuman. Yeah. And then the um, the prison guards became tyrants. Basically. Yeah. And and, yeah, and, and their role just completely took over them. Yeah. So quickly. I mean, they had to close it down after two days or something because because right. the guards were becoming so violent and oppressive, and it was right. yeah, it was spinning out of control. Yeah. Now, I mean, yeah. the, oh, and that's. Probably a lot of what you talked about here plays into the Tainapora thing, which I'm sure we'll get to, because I'm really interested in that, and, and, and that's kind of, we talked a little bit about that, and you've released a book about it too, so I definitely want to get into it. But um, going back to Australia, when you, you moved over there, you, you did a, um, you, is that where you did the writing course? To- yeah, so, well, once I sort of figured out that this was a thing that I really, really wanted to do, I made it my mission to try and get into the film school, the main the Australian film film school, mm. um, and kind of made some films and got, got in there um, after a couple of years, and and, um, and that was an incredible, incredible opportunity. There was, at the time, it was kind of one of the leading film schools, and, and incredibly well-resourced was, um, they apparently they spent more on each of us as students than they spend on fighter pilots in the Australian Air Force to to train them. Um, But, you know, we got to make movies all the time and it was, uh, yeah, yeah, no, it was was pretty astonishing. And um, the kind of the end result was, I mean, the first proper film script that I had made into a um, short film ended up doing really well and sort of gave me a bit of a springboard into it. Is that Michelle's third novel? Michelle's third novel. So did that... um, that opened for Pulp Fiction in Cannes, didn't it? In, no, in, it opened. It did open for Pulp Fiction, but it was at the New York Film Festival. It was right. a US premiere of right. Pulp Fiction. So, How did that come about? I don't know. They saw it and they kind of loved it. And yeah. um, and it kind of had the same, I guess, uh, offbeat kind of freaky kind of tone as, as yeah. Pulp Fiction does. And, and, and yeah, one of my kind of proudest moments was we were... So me and the Australian director and... Um, we're kind of backstage waiting. Our film was playing, and we we're waiting to be introduced to the audience. And Tarantino was sort of five meters that way, and wow, he was wonderful. he was writing his um, notes because he was about to introduce his film to the to the audience. And yeah. um, he was writing his notes, and he sort of glanced up at our film and writing his notes, and glanced up again, and then just stopped writing his notes and started watching our film. And yeah. Um, <laughs> awesome. and yeah, that no, was good. And we 
is it essentially the plot is a about writer's block, isn't it? In, in, in yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it was yeah. Well, it was my first film at film school, written from and your point of view as a writer. Yeah, about yeah, yourself. yeah, yeah. It was um, so our first sort of project of the year was to write a five minute film, and um, of the first first project of the first year, and I just had terrible writer's block. I had no idea what to write, and at the same time. Um, I was sort of in my little room in, in a backwards suburb in Sydney and, and uh, made making breakfast and a piece of toast got stuck in the toaster. So I, I did what, you know, what we all know we shouldn't and got a knife and tried to get it and got an electric shock. Oh, my God. And, <laughs> and that sort of sat there and I s- still couldn't quite figure out what the movie was going to be about and, and, and then gradually it dawned on me, oh, well, here's something. And, and so the plot of the movie basically is a writer's trying to write her third novel. Yeah. Um, and... <laughs> She's stuck and she toast gets stuck in the toaster. She puts knife in, she gets an electric shock and suddenly she's got the perfect sentence in her head. <laughs> and she starts writing and then she gets stuck again. So she gets the knife and goes back deliberately to the toaster and <laughs> keeps going right. back and back and getting shocked and getting thrown across the room and she's covered in, uh, you know, she's, her hair's all frazzled. And, but finally she, she finishes her third novel and she's also managed to write a book of poetry and two collections of short stories. And <laughs> but, um, but now she's so full of electricity that as she walks across the Carpet, um, her footprints catch fire. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's a, sweet and silly. A price to pay. Yeah. And do you do you regularly suffer from writer's block? Not anymore. Just, not you anymore. kind of you um, figured out mechanisms. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I figured out ways to yeah ways to take off the stress and ways to find your way around it. I yeah. think I think everyone does after. Yeah. 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 It's part. Of, I guess it's part of the job in a way, isn't it? To figure out how to get yourself into the space to be able to do what. What, to. what do you do to get? Um, I, 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 one thing I like to do is just start writing. Right. I just write, write loads and loads of stuff. Anything. It kind of depends on what, what I'm trying to do. Like if it's songwriting, I'll just write, just start putting loads of chords together, just get the wheels turning. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which means lots and lots of shit. Right. Yeah, um, that's right. Finally, maybe, a hope, hopefully a good idea eventually right. comes along. Yeah. yeah. Are you yeah. going to try the, um, stick the fork in the, in the socket? I'll give it a shot. Yeah. When, <laughs> when I was, do you remember those, um, little plastic plugs that you put on the, um, yeah. the wall yeah. and you have a plastic key? It's supposed to be a safety thing. Right. When I was a kid, um, I couldn't find the key to get the plug, the plastic protector thing out. So, um, I tried to get it out with a pair of scissors and oh, basically stuck shit. each side of the, each blade of the scissors into each oh, my thing. God. And woke mm. up on the other side of the room. Oh, that explains God. a lot. It <laughs> <laughs> literally exploded and um, uh, shocked uh. me. Threw me a, maybe five meters across the room. Yeah. My mum was upstairs and she heard it and came running downstairs and found me unconscious and the wall on fire. Yeah. So, oh my <laughs> God. So yeah. So I've already done that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, so I am fascinated about the writing process with a musician, mm. with, with you guys. Though. So so, I mean, where like where does a song start when you're trying to I mean, I, I feel so jealous of musicians, basically. I mean, because, of, well, you know, with writing a film, for instance, it just, mm. it takes so long, it takes so long to get funding for it. You know, right. so much is out of your control, whereas yeah. you guys get to sit down and, like, hammer away on a piano or play right. the guitar. And you guys actually, I mean, the other thing is that, you know, I, I think I'm really jealous of the musician's direct connection to an audience you know yeah. whereas the filmmakers sort of make stuff and then it goes away and that's a good point that actually. direct connection thing I was thinking about the other night on stage we were playing where were we playing last week last week uh, Tauranga in Tauranga and yeah. um, I, I just took a moment to look at the front of the crowd and, and just 
they were having so much fun, you know, yeah. and that mm. was really awesome. Oftentimes, I'll, I'll just get lost in what I'm doing, mm. but then to see something like that and to see these people absolutely, totally enjoying mm-hmm. themselves makes it. You know, I've been I've been sort of doing the same thing recently. Right. I mean, it's like I'm. It's like you know, you know, things very quickly become a memory. And, yeah, and then you kind of go, and then you start to look back at the past and look fondly at the past, you know. Yeah. So I've been trying to like take in the moment. Right. So I'll be up on stage, like looking at the same audience, thinking like. I'm on stage looking at the audience. This is going really well. Like, yeah, yeah. like, like, try to be present. Yeah, you know? yeah. In, yeah. in the moment. Yeah. Um, in terms yeah. of writing songs, I don't know. The inspiration can come almost from anywhere. And in yeah. in a band situation, which was what I spent most of my career in, we would literally just get in a room and make a lot of noise. Mm. And then you could be making noise for hours and hours and hours. And then there'd be that one spark in the middle mm, there mm. somewhere that's worth mining for gold. And you mm. take it out and you finesse it. And I know I used to um, tell a lot of my friends that. Um, and it was always almost better than um, you know, like a drug high. Not that I've, mm. I've ever experienced a drug mm. high before. Sure. But when you you hit that that <laughs> moment where it's just come together and you go, "Fuck, that is something special." Yeah. yeah. That bit there, and oftentimes you can't recreate that in the studio. But that you've got to cherish those moments when a piece of music, a genius moment, happens. You know. And, like, and what yeah. it just might just be a, a riff. Or yeah, it could be. Yeah. 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 yeah it um, could be that someone for some reason stopped in the middle of something and everyone else kept playing and it's like okay we leave that in there because that was a, a happy accident or, or what have you yeah, like I, yeah. I find writing music with a band really easy because I, I, I've done a lot of improv over the years and so I can um, I'm quite comfortable in an environment with a you know, drummer or bass player or whatever and, and just sort of coming up with stuff but I think the biggest challenge with songwriting is coming up with a good melody for right. yeah. a good vocal melody yeah um, and I've um, over the years like the only way that I can assess um uh, like judge or critique my own work is is the bits that I still like that you know the parts of my songs or the songs that I still like after all the years have gone by yeah yeah you know yeah. You, you make an album and then a few years later you don't like half of it yeah you don't um, want to be cringeful about it yeah yeah but but the ones that I'm that I still am really fond of have actually been melodies that have uh, have come about without an instrument in my hand right like right. just by you know I guess humming along or something I remember driving up the road once and I just hummed this melody and. I liked it so much I recorded it in my phone and then came back and worked out something to go with it and it became the first song on my third album. So, so, uh, so is melody so so slightly musically illiterate just in terms of vocabulary? So yeah. is that kind of like the structural spine of the, you know, how the tune hangs together? Or It is the tune, really. Yeah, yeah like the melody I'm referring to is the, the vocalist's, you know, line, yeah. basically, like let's say yeah. the chorus or whatever. Um and yeah, melody, I guess, is the shape of the pitch, isn't it? It's the, right. Yeah, I think the spine of anything, melody or not, is probably the rhythm part for me. Right. <laughs> I would say that because right. I'm a drummer. Yeah. But um, <laughs> it, it, it will hold it together and then um, the bed underneath that's normally like some sort of chordal structure. Mm-hmm. I'm not yeah. to saying that's always the case. And then the melody is the thing that weaves over the top, which is the thing that I think people connect to on a more visceral level. The other yeah. stuff might be a little bit airy-fairy. They might not know what's happening in the chordal or the rhythmic yeah. side of it. Melody, they can either harm or if it's got lyrics, obviously, clearly they'll sing along with it. Yeah. It's quite interesting to try and break it down, though, because as soon as you come up with any kind of explanation as to how it works, then um, you know there's always the exceptions. There's always mm-hmm. the other way it's been done. I mean, there there are, and there's so many ways to do it. You know, mm-hmm. um, there's there's like standard pop writing, which is different to like standard early rock and roll writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, if you play like jazz or blues, there's different formulas you. Yeah, but there's definitely and, structure to it, like there is with a movie, you know, act one, act two, and act three, and you've got verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, double chorus out is a very common kind yeah, of yeah. Um, 
structure for a song really or a pop song yeah. like you say in other songs um, are different and it'd be like the same thing as saying and, and there's a thing called through music which is something that doesn't repeat anything it just once starts here and finishes there mm. which is sort of like a David Lynch film really it's, yeah. you can hardly understand anything that's going yeah. on but yeah. you know you've had a, a very visceral experience like, when I was a, um, a kid I was at my grandma's house and my grandma thought that I liked heavy metal even though I didn't um, but she, I think she saw this like young guy with long hair and just assumed I like heavy metal, and she hated heavy metal, and and she she wasn't a, she wasn't a very nice woman, I'll be honest, and she um, she decided to <laughs> make a therapy session. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's right. she this this little moment actually had quite an impact on me because she decided to to basically rag on um, heavy metal because she thought that you know she was getting a point across or something, and. So she just went off on this big spiel about how it's all nonsense and this, this and this, that, whatever. And in the at the same time, she had classical music playing, and I kind of tuned her out and started focusing on the music that I was right, playing. Right. I love classical music, but what I started to realise as I was listening to it was was that it's sort of the same. Yeah. You know, I, I, all the violins and, and uh, you know were were essentially taking up the space of the guitars and the timpanis and rhythm sections and stuff with the drums. And if if you actually you know look at it purely mechanically um there's not that much difference yeah yeah in a, yeah. In a loose sense yeah. you have to sort of go with me a little bit on this but in a loose sense there's not that much difference and really what she's angry about is sort of how it's dressed up yeah yeah the instruments chosen and you know the look of the bands and all that kind of stuff yeah um oh, i fully i fully relate i mean like to me you know with movies essentially every movie is the same i mean right. it's the same spine mm. it's the same kind of something happens at minute 18 yeah, something yeah. happens at minute 24 mm. and exactly halfway through the film you know you can actually do this you can stop the dvd and, and check out how long is this film okay go to halfway something really big is going to happen exactly yeah. on minute 60 right? and, i want to do that now <laughs> and look up blake snyder beat sheet oh yeah you can go through he's got have you seen the um the save the cat 2 version 2.0 no, no he's got a, a 15 um, beat sheet that will go through and you go at page which page 20 which is like relates to about 20 minutes worth of film time uh-huh. this will happen wow. and that will happen and then you'll move into act three by something here normally yeah, he yeah. says like there's a party or a public outcome coming out or whatever of, and or is that consistent across genres like a chick yeah, yeah. yeah. versus yeah. a horror it kind of like, they all look the same and, and right? what makes you know and that's kind of the craft i guess mm. you know in a way and what makes it the art i guess is is what you know what you put on it. What's the unique thing about it? What's the 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 story that no one's ever heard before? What's the right. character journey mm-hmm. that no one's ever seen? Or what's mm-hmm. the? I think people yeah. find comfort in that kind of um, you know structure, if you like. I mean, I, I know people don't like to think that their art is formulaic in any kind of way, <laughs> and that's an evil word to use when talking about art of any kind. But um, but that people like to sort of be able to know where something's going and mm. and subconsciously we pick up on these things mm. quite often i was interested you know as a film director when you're putting music to film to, that you've done uh because your son is a composer or is yeah. he a musician yeah no he's he's so he's well he's second year at auckland uni doing composition but he's also when he was 16 he composed uh my documentary on on tainer um yeah took a took a punt and he man he delivered um, yeah and cool. he did a beautiful job how, yeah. nice how old was he guitar. So he's now he's just about to turn twenty one year. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm. So he was yeah, you no know, he was sixteen when he composed. That's <laughs> he did crazy. Yeah. He did a great job. It was yeah. really cool. Yeah. And, and so and how did you talk to him about what you wanted there with that feel of like this scene, I want you to do something like this and yeah. did he get um So well we talked we talked at length about the feel of the visuals that we've got and you know, I mean 
I guess the visual kind of metaphor or the visual structure of the movie was kind of based around Tainer's world, uh, yeah. which in Tainer's world, of course, was prison for two decades. So, mm. so you know, the um, a lot of the recurring visuals was about barbed wire fences, was about um, concrete walls, and was also about, you know, South Auckland, about the... You know the electric pylons, and yeah. So there's a lot, yeah, trains and um, uh, cars going down motorways. So there's a lot of hard surfaces and coldness and stuff like that. So we we talked a lot about, you know, I mean, his instrument of choice is probably piano, but what I really felt would fit in the movie was, you know, a screaming electric guitar and Mm. different kind of permutations, really. Um, So he kind of took it from there and 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 it was kind of odd like I you know we'd, we'd go through a particular sequence and and I'd give him some ideas about how I thought it might work and he'd go yeah yeah okay and then he'd come back you know an hour later and say yeah dad that was kind of a good idea but I tried this what do you think and mm-hmm. and the ball's the guy and and it was kind of, you know he, he came up with really surprising solutions to addressing the questions that I had but in a way that was from his musical perception which is completely different to my perception and that was really that was really enlightening and yeah and I guess the same with you know like I mean it's just how different minds how the musical mind works compared to the visual mind I guess um something special when you get a really good piece of music that fits really well mm, with the picture yeah um they become something other than the two component parts separate you know they become this otherworldly thing um if it's done correctly yeah and and that particularly that documentary which I watched when it was shown on Maldi television but then they, they put it up online and mm. I went back to watch it because of the music you know just to oh, wow. get a feel for it because um, at the time I was interested in, in film composing as well and yeah it definitely nailed it you know yeah it was really evocative yeah for a 16 yeah. year old kid I was just talking to Danny about before you showed up about how kids are getting younger and younger and better at these damn things yeah making me feel older and older you know they're just bloody amazing so risk, I guess learn. it's a risk for you as well because I, I guess there was always the chance that it wasn't going to be good <laughs> what he came up with yeah, and then yeah. what would you do <laughs> oh well definitely oh for sure my producer and editor were, were, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> were going like okay try him out but you know this probably isn't you know and yeah. just and you've got to tell them, right? <laughs> right. And, and then when I, what do you call it? Stems? Is that what they yep, yep. The, Yeah. So when I brought in the first set of stems to them, and then I just remember looking at them and they're going, yeah, shit. Um, yeah, that was a good moment. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. So your, um, your next film after um, Michelle's third uh, novel, was that Cow? Yeah. Well, that was sort of the first big thing that I directed, yeah. So... Yeah, because you you wrote Michelle's third novel, but you didn't yeah, direct it. Yeah, yeah. So that has a really heavy musical element to it. In fact, yeah. it's based basically about two musicians, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I quite deliberately with that film, I wanted to have a film where they communicated through music. There was no yeah. dialogue, and, and so that must have been yeah. really difficult for someone who may not have know a musical language, but your your primary vehicle for delivery in that film is music. Yeah. How did that? How did you yeah. do that? Um. So, yeah, well, I guess, again, that was one of, the, one of those magic moments of talking to a really perceptive musician who, who was able to, you know, translate my mumblings about what I thought I wanted musically. So Nigel Gavin uh, composed, oh, the, yeah. um, composed the guitar riff that keeps re- reoccurring through the film. But basically, 
I'm sure most people haven't seen it, but um, it's Spoiler the story. Alert. What's that? Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert, yeah. <laughs> so it's two old friends, uh, Martin Sanderson and Ian Yoon, um, on a boat towing a, um, a cow which, who's on a little, uh, another smaller boat behind them <laughs> across the open ocean. And um, we, we filmed on a wet stage, so it's quite surreal. Um, and so they're rowing across the ocean and they row with their guitars and every night they stop and they play this tune, this melody to each other. <laughs> and, you know, the, they're, they're old mates and they're basically looking for land to, right. uh, to go and set up with their cow. Um, and every night they play the guitars and then one night Martin Sanderson's, one of his strings breaks and so he can never play his guitar as well as Ian Mune's guitar <laughs> after that. And after a fretful night he goes and breaks one of Ian Mune's strings so <laughs> right. that they'll be equal. And it, it escalates and escalates and, and um, yeah, and mayhem ensues by the was end of the film. Was that filmed in New Zealand? Yeah, yeah. Right. So we, we filmed it on a wet stage that was, we, um, my producer was Chloe Smith, who was the producer of Xena, and mm -hmm. uh, we were really lucky to be able to use one of the Xena's um, big pools to, to film ah, it. And, um, right. yeah. and there may or may not be bestiality involved. Yeah, Martin, <laughs> yeah. No, Ian, Ian Yoon may do something strange to a cow, which, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so you but that it. was so. So I sort of, you know, showed Nigel the script and talked about how, you know, I really wanted it to have the melody to have this feel of bubbliness and effervescence that kind of goes darker. That might be able to be twisted to become darker later mm -hmm. on. And um, and he just kind of came back with this perfect little guitar riff. That, that it I, was from memory. Was it sort of gypsy jazz? It's been a few years since I've seen it. Was it gypsy jazz kind of? Nylon guitar. Yeah, um, I I don't know if I can yeah, if I know I the genre remember. you're talking about, but it's 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 bouncy, upbeat, and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. You have to check it out, Danny, if you get a chance. It's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> and and then from there, did you you worked on Zena too, didn't you? As a as a writer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was kind of the secret rewriter. So right. um, so the, the the scripts were actually written in the states, but 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 often when they got to New Zealand, they sort of needed to be nudged and prodded, and and for practicality's sake, like the you know a bunch of guys sitting in Los Angeles kind of didn't know the production realities of New Zealand, and and yeah. you know um, so I worked on um, uh, rewriting uh, a bunch of the scripts and making them more achievable, and yeah, which was amazing to see the how the big American process. Kind of works. So, yeah, are you talking yeah. to, to like working within the production limits? You have to recraft the story a little bit, yeah, because you can't necessarily access that technology that's required to do that or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and other issues. I mean, there would be other story issues that that um, that just needed solving. Right. And um, and and that was amazing. You know, working with Rob Tappert and mm. and um, who's you know a freaking genius and um, and just seeing how something of that scale kind of worked. And mm. and and again, it was like you know, I mean. It's not like it was um, anything that was that we can't do. Yeah. It's just those guys have been doing it longer and yeah. Fine I, I think yeah. since then we've definitely proven that in this country, yeah. haven't we? Because that's around about the time the first Lord of the Rings came out. You know, the late nineties. And but that but Zena was shot in the late nineties. Lord of the first Lord of the Rings. Yeah, nineteen ninety nine, I think, or two thousand wow. maybe. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> the and the, Zena was shot out west in Auckland. Huh? Mm -hmm. Um, so has the is the perception that the film industry in New Zealand is based out of Wellington or or is there more production coming here because there's the Auckland studios out west I guess mm. that's sort of near where they were shooting is that um, is there a lot of work international work coming here yeah no what, um, 
the Auckland Studios, though, I mean, it was, you know, three years ago, everything kind of died in the ass when we had the problems with our rebate not being nearly competitive with Ireland or Czechoslovakia right. and stuff. And, mm. and everything kind of disappeared, apart from Peter Jackson stuff and Wellington, because it's just a different beast, really. Um, yeah. But, no, everything's back now. So the studios out west are all booked up for... For you know, foreseeable future, really. So they solved so, that rebate thing. Yeah, and it wasn't you know, it didn't take geniuses. It was you know, yeah. When I think Czechoslovakia offers thirty five percent, and Ireland offers thirty percent, and and we were just nowhere near it. So right. um, um, and it's just you know, yes, you have to give back a little bit of money, but the benefit of getting all those gazillions of dollars coming in and and yeah. our crews and. We think the people in charge of the economy would understand the economy, right? Yeah. You wouldn't have to to explain basic economics to the person who runs the economy. But in New Zealand, you don't have to pay the actors, um, you don't have to pay them residuals, do you? Yeah, I think that probably... That helps. Yeah. But I've got to say, too, for writers, you know, our deals are just like so incomparably different to American deals. It's it's mind-boggling. In the worst... In the worst possible way, yeah. Like, I mean, just... You know, we probably our base rates as as writers and directors is maybe a quarter of the base rates of American Writers Guild, and mm-hmm. and we don't have all the residuals and all that kind of astonishing stuff. So it's mm. it's across the board, right. really. Yeah. Uh, okay, all that passive income coming from uh, cable yeah. television, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And did you ever have the desire um, to to go relocate to America at all? Yeah, not to relocate. I mean, I still I, w- I would. Um, you know, I'd love to find a way to be able to do it from here. But mm. you know, how could you leave this place? You know, I mean, I, right. you know, we. The, the more I've kind of like looked at how you could grow your career versus quality of life versus mm. you know, um, I mean, there's a reason everyone wants to come to New Zealand, isn't there? Yes. Well, yeah. yeah, James Cameron's doing it, and I guess I mean, like you say, they're bigger scale beasts. Um, Peter Jackson and, but would you ever want to be on a big budget film like that I mean Taika Waititi's in the middle of making his, his first big budget pretty amazing eh Behemoth yeah bloody, bloody cool because you're uh, is it true that you're related to Manu Bennett yes he's my uh, cuz yeah. right so, and yeah. he's been in a lot of those big um, more the Peter Jackson things and he's shooting yeah. is it Shannara Chronicles or whatever yeah yeah he's doing Shannara yeah yeah um, yeah, yeah, no, he's he's done a lot of that big American stuff, and and yeah, he's he's doing incredibly for himself. New Zealand has a, some sort of production deal with China that you're involved with somehow. Yeah, so not not so much a production deal. We've got a uh, a treaty with treaty. China, yeah. a co-production treaty, which which you know with the film commission and a bunch of us uh, filmmakers who have been really interested in working with China have been trying to find a way to to get projects up with China for a long time mm-hmm. um, and it's it's kind of challenging on one level I mean obviously sort of the advantages of it is that you know if you can find a story that works for a Chinese audience mm. you know sometime this year they're going to become the biggest domestic box office in the world they're going to overtake America um, right. the, the Chinese government is furiously building new cinemas all over the place and mm. um, Wow. So you know the whole world is trying to go to China to make things happen, but mm. but um, so so the advantage of trying to find a film that would work in China is all kinds of advantages. And that's right. why Don, Donnie Yen is in the next Star Wars film. Right, he's a big action star in China, isn't he? Although I right. think he grew up in America. But yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, um, so and um, I'm also kind of working on a uh, on a Korean co-production that's. Um, same same thing. We've got a Korean treaty 
uh, New Zealand Korean Treaty, which or basically what it means is that the um, it facilitates working between there's tax breaks on both sides, and you right. can both countries can work together. The trick that really is finding something that culturally resonates with both audiences, which is mm. sort of with the Korean project. That's um, one that uh, I think I'm feeling really pleased with. With we we've, we've got I started working with a Korean producer a couple of years ago um, on a story called Pokari Kariana, which is about a Maori soldier in the Korean War, and um, the thing that got us both going, Sebastian, the Korean producer, and myself. Uh, early on was when Sebastian mentioned that Pokari Kariana is now um, in Korea the folk song, the national folk song. Uh, the it's what really? Uh, so it's called Yongga in Korea. Wow! And you know when kids go to camp and the first song that they sit when they sing when they sit around the fire is Pokari Kariana, the, yeah. the Korean version. Since Maori soldiers were in the Korean War and. Uh, and built really good relationships with the locals, you know, as Maori soldiers kind of did all around the world in a very different way to like American soldiers or, right, yeah. um, and they would sort of, you know, interact with the locals and share food and, mm. and, and the song got transferred to Korean. It's so they, they sing it in Korean? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So and it's obviously same melody and same meaning. Same. Yeah. It's a, it's a love story. About, right. It's yeah. about a Maori soldier that fell in love with a Korean girl. Yeah, I didn't even know we had a presence um, in the Korean War. To be honest, yeah, no, didn't. no, we definitely did, and we're yeah. really so well respected in Korea. Um, just you know, because we came, you know, it wasn't our fight, and we went right. there, and we, and it was a bloody awful war. Yeah, um, and because we had a, a, you know, a very real respect for the locals that was maybe different to some of the other nations, really, and mm. yeah, a real close connection. Yeah. Mm. They're bloody great people, Koreans. Amazing. Yeah, like the, right. I mean, you know, there's kind of this amazing kind of warmth and openness, and they call them like the the French of the the Italians of the of of Asia, and um, right. and I think it's really easy to see how there was that really natural connection between Maori and the locals, and yeah, yeah. yeah. Are yeah. Italians particularly nice and friendly? <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> I um yeah, I've been to, we've played in South Korea um, but it's just it's, it has this feeling I don't know whether it was just me being there or, or what have you but they are literally a country still at war you mm. know, that, yeah. that, that it's still a treaty in place that could fall apart at any time there's people looking across the demilitarized zone at each other yeah um, that's that bizarre spark off at any minute yeah um, yeah it's amazing on an international level too mm. yeah it keeps right. firing missiles into the sea and things mm. yeah mm. yeah um, and so I read somewhere recently that you you consider writing and directing the same thing. That the two words, a writer and a director, are two words for the same thing. Can you just sort of elaborate on what that what you meant by that? Hmm. Or do you not remember saying that? I don't remember saying that. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I kind of I think I know what I mean. Right. Um, I mean, yeah, they definitely are. You know, I mean, it, it, it's um, for me. I mean, for me, writing is by far my more natural. You know, I'm. I'm I think people are different beasts and as filmmakers like this there's directors who who write because they have to get their own scripts and and mm. and there's people who are genuinely sort of equally balanced between writing and directing and for me you know I'm definitely a writer mm. who directs um because you you know who has learned to direct mm-hmm. um because you know with certain projects I, they're so special for me that I want to 
you know, I want to see you them all the way to, through, to really. Yeah. yeah. Like Matariki was one of those? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, yeah. you know, that was a really precious thing that took, you know, quite a really long time to get to the screen, like eight or nine years or something. And it was, mm. you know, um, yeah, it was so special to me that, you know, I couldn't not direct it, really. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think, absolutely. I, I think, you know, I, there's... Um, I think if you're a true screenwriter, i.e. if you write images as opposed to, like for me, dialogue is, is almost irrelevant in the movie. Um, uh, I think if you've, if you've set up the film properly and if you're telling the story properly and if you've set up your characters properly, they can say something or the exact opposite and we know what you, they actually mean right. deep right. down. Yeah. You know, the subtext yeah. comes through. And, yeah. and so dialogue is, is kind of... The last thing and I'm concerned also about really be very helped a lot by music as well. Yeah, to give that emotional undertone. Yeah, to, to ab- absolutely. And so I think you know to be a really good screenwriter, I think you have to think in images, and you have to right. be able to convey meaning in images, and that's mm-hmm. of course what the director's job is. You yeah. know. I think there's some there's truth in that with um, lyric writing too. Right. Yeah. Something I thought yeah, about absolutely. a lot is that when you when you actually break a lot of songs down lyrically and analyze them, especially songs that you you fond of or quite familiar with um, they often are about quite different things than you took out of it yeah. you know, there's always the lines that jump out to you and, and, or, or even words you get wrong <laughs> you know you remember <laughs> it the wrong way and you think it means something else yeah, um, yeah. but it's more about um, getting the, 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 the right mood or feel yeah. you know, mm. to the listener I mean if you just think about half the stuff on the radio it doesn't make any sense yeah. what's an uptown funk yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, it just gets your booty moving. Yeah. Um, have you ever read the lyrics to Uptown Funk? No, I can't say that. I have. It's just, it's just drivel, <laughs> right? You know, it's yeah. but it's it's fun. It's a good song. Well, who would have thought "Ooh, baby, baby" was the lyric? Right. You know? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it, but it conveys a, a certain emotion or a, or a mood, if you like. <laughs> um, so I, and now I want to sort of get a little bit into the heavier stuff. Um, you um, basically you are. A champion of Tainted Pura, um, and and that story is a something that's affected this country on many many levels over the last couple of years. I wanted to ask: was was making the documentary um, Confessions of Prisoner T was that your first insight into that that world, the entertainer's world, and is that what pulled you in? Because you've written a book now, mm-hmm. uh, and you've have you done so it's the book in the in the documentary, isn't it? Yes, and, yeah. and just starting to develop a, a dramatic feature. Yeah, right. Yeah, so I guess well, what 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 pulled me in um, uh, was uh, Tim McKinnell, who's the private investigator, who ex cop, who who found Tana's case um, mm. and began work on it um, tirelessly for the last seven or eight years, and and, and won Tana his freedom. So qu- quite early on, after Tim had started work on the case, he 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 talked to me. Um, uh, I think he kind of knew that the he had a very strong view that that um, he had to have some sort of sort of strategy to get the story to the public. That right. um, that alongside what he was doing on an investigative level, it was really important to uh, get a public awareness and, and support get behind the case. Really, so he talked mm-hmm. to he talked to a few people very selectively. I think you know Paulina Paula Penfold and Eugene Bingham and uh, Phil Taylor and the Herald and there was a bunch of us who very early on got quite passionate about the mm. story um yeah i guess what really you know made me realize it was something that i couldn't not do was when uh when tim first came to my office and showed me the the tapes of 
the confessions, of the, confessions of the police interviews of the right. the five days that Tainan was interviewed without a lawyer present by by two the two sem- most senior cops in South Auckland and um, yeah so I eventually sort of watched that whole nine hours of interviews and it was just it was one of the most confronting and awful and heartbreaking and infuriating and disturbing things that I've ever seen this you know this young kid who you know who was at the time he was uh, 17 years old who clearly you know if you watch in the nine hours of the interviews uh, I defy anyone to go through that and not come to the conclusion that he had no idea what he was talking about right mm-hmm. that he had never been to Susan Burdett's house that he was he'd never he was absolutely in no way involved with the crime and he was making up a bunch of stories and he mm-hmm. was this kid who was clearly had some kind of issue mental issue mm-hmm. um you know we didn't know it was FASD back then mm-hmm. um I mean that only emerged later but um um, and he was digging this hole for himself that mm. and you know and and with a great deal of assistance with by two extremely powerful police officers it speaks and, to what you were talking about earlier about the authority figures um, and they even from the little snippets that you put into the documentary you could tell that they were shaping this an outcome they had predetermined something and they were shaping it by pushing him in a way um, pushing the narrative in a way um, to make him look guilty as sin. Yeah. And the the one the part that really blew me away was when they took him to the area mm. and parked down by some dairy and said, "Well, you show us where you were mm. on the night." And it completely had no idea where he was. Mm. And mm. The street was wrong, and they said, "Well, how about we just go up here and mm. and do you recognise any of these houses?" And he's like, "No." And it's almost like, I mean, I might be remembering this one, it's almost like they turned his shoulders around and said, do you remember that house there? And he mm. said, yes, or whatever it was. And they go, okay. Like, yeah. Fuck, man. I mean. So, so yes, um, very close to what happened. You know, yeah. I mean, that to me was the most devastating moment of all in watching those interviews is that um, one of the detectives uh, said, they're trying to get him to identify Susan Burdett, the victim's house, mm. where he says that he went on the night of the murder and, and assisted in, in the rape and murder. And they take him to stand outside the house. And Tainer, you know, what condemned Tainer was the video interviews, but also what saved him. Because eventually when the video interviews were rediscovered by Tim McKinnell many years later, uh, the the thing that saved Tainer really was that they had all this evidence on camera, on really old crappy degraded VHS footage where you could actually see what was happening and mm-hmm. so the cameras on Tana the whole time as they're walking down the street and you know he clearly doesn't know where the house is the detectives stop outside her house and they get they say you know have a look around things might have changed since you were here last year and um the cameras on Tana and he so clearly has no, no idea clue, eh? no no clue what where the house is so finally, this, the most senior detective says, um, okay, I can see you're having trouble remembering. If I point to a house, will that help you remember? And, you know, I mean, if you know anything about leading, questioning, yeah. about, um, I mean, it's sort of 101 how not to question a, yeah, a, right. a, a suspect. Yeah. And However, um, he pointed to a house and, and Tana said, yeah, no, that's the house that we went to. And, yeah. and, and on the basis of this videotaped confession, you know, Tana was convicted by two juries and, and mm. spent 
21 years in prison. And what do you think their agenda was? Was it just to... Did they, were they anti him for some reason or were they just being lazy or like... It was, a, it was a year since Susan Burdett was murdered. Mm-hmm. They had no idea. They had... Um, there was DNA in her body and there was... You know, there was the early days of DNA. There was no DNA match. Right. Uh, and they... Uh, they were... It was an embarrassment to yeah. the police force. It was the only sort of current murder on the books that in New Zealand that was unsolved. Mm-hmm. And... There was absolutely an element of tunnel vision that came into play that, you know, once, you know, I mean, to put it in perspective, Tainer offered the information that he was there, that he was involved. Right. And, um, uh, and for the reward money, the reason being that there was a $20,000 reward. And so he, he, he knowing, you know, for various reasons, he became aware of the $20,000 reward. Mm. Um, and he began a strategy, uh, you know, a, a, a deeply self-destructive strategy, but, you know, in the context of a, a person who has a brain injury, right? Um, to get the $20,000 reward by saying he was involved in the crime and uh, in the belief that he would, you know, he, he named two people who actually had nothing to do with the crime, yeah. but in the belief that he thought that he would get the $20,000. Uh, which immunity or something. Yeah, he, you know, it was explained to him really early on the concept of immunity. Yep. If you weren't actually the person who killed or raped Susan Burdett and you helped us uh, find the people, then you'll, uh, you won't be prosecuted. Right. Um, and he turned down the right to have a lawyer present because he, you know, he believed he would have immunity because he knew that he didn't do it. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so, I mean, there was, there was, I mean, any number of factors that made the police extremely... Proactive. I have in, a very sci- unscientific um, <laughs> possible explanation. I went through a few things when I was t- talking about maybe putting this together with you, and it sort of struck me to maybe look at some statistics from around that time. And as I say, it's very unscientific. It, it might just spark a few questions. But just remind us what, what kind of time this is. What so kind of year? the mid to late nineties. Mid to late nineties. Okay. Uh, so so ninety three. He was actually arrested. Ninety four. He was convicted. Convicted. Ninety four. Okay. Yeah. Around that same time, nineteen ninety five. David Bain was also convicted. Okay, yeah. Uh, 1993, Peter Ellis, um, the, the crush, mm, crash mm. guy, he was also convicted. And then Scott Watson, 1999. Now, I, I have no real... Um, whether these people are guilty or not guilty, other than, of course, Taina Pora. That's mm. um, obvious. Uh, mm. But in the late to mid-90s, serious murder resolution rates jumped from, um, from 62% to 91% solve rate. So okay. something in there is telling mm-hmm. you that well, tell, tells me anyway either their methods have changed or um, you know because there there are questions over all of those people I've mentioned and that's in the mid nineties you know mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. about the the police solve rates of of crimes um, so I I just put that out there I'm not trying to really suggest anything other than it seems a little bit weird that there's questions hanging over all of those yeah yeah do you have any idea um, what the numbers are now. Uh, no, I didn't go that far down, um, probably. Uh, or they say eventually it's close to 100% solve rate in, in murders in this country. Um, so hmm. that, that's one fact I did. Well, fact. Hmm. F-A-C-T, fact, <laughs> that I read online. But um, it's interesting. Hmm. And um, and just recently, the woman who was... So 
are we allowed to mention the the person that probably or seems to have been the person who was obviously convicted of raping Susan Burdett? Mm. Was yeah, so Malcolm Rewell undoubtedly was in Susan Burdett's room when she died and and, and raped her, and um, he was a lone serial um, violent sexual offender who who. In, in all of the other 24 rapes that he was convicted of, only ever acted alone. And mm-hmm. um, and so, you know, with a lot of justification, um, most, many of us believe that he should definitely be uh, tried again for, for Susan's murder. And they're saying that they can't do that because no new evidence has come forth, right? Yes, which is mind-boggling. That's crazy. Huh? So, you know, I mean... All of the new evidence that led to Tainer's exoneration, i.e., the new evidence of false confessions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, one of the main reasons Malcolm Rewell was tried twice for Susan's murder, yeah. and the jury was hung on both trials, primarily, I believe, because there was someone else in prison already for his for for Susan Burdett's murder. Right, right. So it's extremely confusing for a jury to go, well, this. So what's going on? And, yeah. and so yeah. Um, it's, it's a yeah easy decision that the guy's already in prison for it. Yeah. Do they still have the DNA? Yeah. So so well the DNA is I mean is without question it was Malcolm Rewa's DNA. Right. And, that's and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's the only physical evidence of anybody uh, anyone outside of her family or um, being in her room. Right. Obviously there was no uh, physical evidence of Tainer being there because he wasn't there. Yeah. And, and so how's the book um, come? Oh, we talked about this, about how the book, you don't sort of find out about that for, for a wee while. Yeah, it's, it's weird. Like with movies, you kind of, obviously, you know, day by day, who's gone and seen your film and how many numbers have gone and seen. But with books, it seems to take a little while for the information to dribble back from booksellers and things. But, mm. um, but you know, I mean, we've had, um, you know, really pleasing critical response and, yeah. and, and public response and, and um and it seems to be uh, going off the shelves, which is nice. It's, um, you know, the biggest thing, you know, um, the biggest thing about wanting to do the book really was to tell the full story, you know, what you can't really tell in a 60-minute doco or a 90-minute movie. Sure. Um, yeah. You know, I guess all the aspects of the legal case, but but beyond that, you know, really the story of, I mean, for a lot of people, it's still enigmatic that someone would make a false confession to something that mm-hmm. they, something so awful that they right. didn't do. And I think, you know, when you know the full circumstances of Tainer's life, it's, it's, he didn't, you know, have a great existence. And there was a massive amount of pressure on him from family members who had come to believe that he had something to do with the crime and yeah. um, massive amount of pressure. He was a, you know, he had a little girl when he was 15 years old. He, he had, had his daughter and, and he was essentially, caring for her by proceeds from nicking cars and, and right. the temptation of a $20,000 reward to be able to look after his daughter was massive. And so, you know, I mean, f- for me, writing the book was wanting to really let the New Zealand public understand, you know, the Tainer that I've got to know over the last few years, but also to understand, you know, cause Tim McKinnell, I think is an absolute New Zealand hero that, um, he, you know, he had no connection to Tainer. He mm-hmm. had no reason to, you know, go and do this incredible job that he did and to win a guy justice after 20 years. And, um, and so when did Tainer get out? So Tainer got released on parole maybe three years ago okay. or two years ago, kind of because it just got to the embarrassing stage. You know, mm. he'd been in for 20 years and yeah. and every time he went for parole, he got turned down because they would ask the question, have you accepted your guilt and he would say I'm not guilty 
Right. And so the parole board would say, well, you haven't accepted your guilt. You need to spend some more time inside. It had got to the embarrassing point. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if he'd, if, he'd just, if he'd just said at a parole board meeting after 12 years inside, yes, I'm guilty, let me out, mm. he would have been let out. Right. Um, so he was released on parole about yeah, two or three years ago and um, he was exonerated by the Privy Council last year. Does that mean that now the was the parole over overlapping that period? Was is the parole then called off because he's exonerated? Yeah. Exon- so so once he's exonerated, once yeah. once his uh, convictions have been quashed, then no, he, he's no longer on parole. He's, right. he's completely outside of the justice system. Yeah. And, and what kind of life do you think he can have now? He's so um, what Tainer has now is that he's maybe perhaps not really ever had before in his life is that he's got a bunch of people around him who. Uh, you know, uh, have his back, right? In a way that he hasn't for a very long, forever, really. Yeah. Um. You know, and and there's a bunch of people who who you know are determined that to give him support that you know, and not you know, there's he's got some very he's got a particularly um unique primary sort of support network, which is a a guy called um Fiki Tatua, who's mm-hmm. um. Um, a remarkable man who's come from uh, a, a background in gangs and in prison and knows what Tane has been through. Yeah. And, and Fecky as well has turned his life around. You know, he right. um, five years ago he walked away from his gang connections, went mm-hmm. to the university and studied Māori and sociology. Wow. And um, so he's, you know, as opposed to maybe some of us, like myself certainly, who'd never been in prison until I visited Tainer. And, you know, while I, you know, Love the guy and and uh, and want to support him any way I can. I don't know his world in that yeah. kind of way. Mm-hmm. Fiki does, and Fiki knows that the problem the problems that Tainas is, is facing. And, right. and so, I think in many ways, um, you know, with with that kind of support around him, you know, Tainas always going to have challenges because he does yeah. have a you know he does have a brain injury, and that's never going to go away. Plus, at a young age, this has happened, and now he's spent yeah. so much time in prison. Yeah. So, I mean, to to have to 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 get back to any kind of normal yeah life must be a yeah. big challenge. It is. I mean, one thing that Taina himself has within him that you know I think puts him in incredibly good stead that I don't think any very few of us would have is this astonishing capacity for forgiveness you know wow that he's he, i mean he he has come out of prison you know of course he is not happy about what happened mm. but i mean the first time i ever met Taina, i when i went into at six and you know before i met him i sort of put myself in his place and i thought here's a guy who must get up every morning and, and just punch the wall yeah he must be furious and, yeah, and and when I met Taina, it was the opposite. He was, you know, he was a calm, gentle-spoken. Um, uh, he was almost sort of philosophical about where he was, and and um, and and he, you know, he do, he doesn't have that anger inside him that that I think the rest, you know, most of us would have. Mm. He's he's learnt to deal with it, and, and to the extent that you know, I mean. This quite remarkable thing, which is at the end of my book in the, f- the final chapter, which is the night of his exoneration from the, by the Privy Council, um, his legal team had not they'd known what the result was from the Privy Council for a couple of weeks, but you know legally 
really cruelly, they weren't allowed to tell him. You know, right. it, mm. it would be a miss, it would break the rules. Um, and so that had to sit on this, which was just, you know, the most important news in a man's life. Yeah. And he wasn't allowed to be told it. So, do you know why this rule exists? Seems crazy. So it's, the reason that the defense team needs to know it is to prepare, obviously, to prepare the grounds, but this, the, you know, I, I, I don't know why that rule to so that I guess it doesn't slip out and right. um, before the official announcement or I'm not sure, <laughs> but so, so finally on, you know, two hours before the, the official announcement came out, um, they were finally allowed to tell Tana. So they, they, they sat him down and Tim McKinnell told Tana, we've got some news. The, all of your, um, convictions have been quashed you're a free man and you're um and and Tana's you know I mean there's obviously a lot of emotion all of the his legal team Jonathan Krebs and Ingrid Squire were both in tears Tim was in tears Tana was in tears but um um the first question he asked after Tim had told him this was, um, what about the children of the detectives? And Tim says, what, what do you mean? What about the children? And Tana said, well, with this result, with the Privy Council saying that I didn't do it, the children of the detectives, they, you know, they might think that they're, they might think badly about their dads putting an innocent man in jail. Wow. And wow. I'm just concerned about what they are going to feel. And, you know, I mean, that's incredible. I can't get my head around that. I know. When Tim told me that, yeah. I just, it was absolutely amazing that a guy in prison for 20 years, his first thoughts would be for the kids of the detectives that put him mm. there in the first place. I remember at the book launch when, um, you know, the official, um, you know, it was you came up and you made a speech. And I don't think Tim did Tim speak. Yeah. yeah he did, didn't he? Yeah. But um, Taylor was really shy, didn't want to come up. And he just seems like a really humble kind of, mm. um, kind of guy. And that, is an astonishing reaction to, I mean, I don't know, like you say, that kind of level of forgiveness and that humility, I don't think any of us would have that. I'd mm-hmm. be mm-hmm. fucking furious. Some yeah. Are, yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, like, <laughs> for, literally, yeah, like punching the walls and throwing shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's crazy. And, um, and how did he, what, what was his, um, you, you know, his view on actually the transition of leaving prison after being there for so long? Was he, was he afraid of that or was he, you know, was he nervous or... Uh, by the time he got out, yeah, no, he was he was ready. The, uh, the um, and it wasn't easy, but, but um, I mean, I do remember. So I, I had um, I, I took him out for his first day's home leave in a decade or so, um, because as you're getting ready to, uh, as you're getting ready to be paroled, you 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 get periods of home leave that gradually extend. So his first time out was for four hours and mm. he went to his daughter's place and his daughter didn't have a car. Chanel didn't have a car at that point. So um, so I, I, I took Chanel up and we got Tana and we went back to her place in, in Takanini. Right. Um, and I remember that day, I mean, that, that's a really good question. That day, it was quite remarkable. I, I remember driving out of Paremoremo with Tana and he was almost rigid. Like right. it, I could sort of sense his, and I kind of just sort of pat him on his arm and said, you're right, why don't you get some music? And I, said, and I gave him my iPhone and, and, he, and he sort of scrolled through and found found some music and started playing um, through, 
through Bluetooth and, and Chanel was in the back seat and she said, oh, you know, remembering that this bit Tony went to prison before we had FPOS, before we had email addresses, yeah. before we had. So Chanel in the back seat said, oh, Dad, you know, you know that that is a phone as well. You can make phone calls on it. And, and that was sort of mind-boggling to Tony. Right. And, and he, but he was, the tension was so palpable of him leaving those prison gates and mm. coming out into the world. And he really only started to slightly re relax when we got down to Spaghetti Junction and because he used to go joyriding in cars around Spaghetti Junction and right. started to recognise places. And But um, it was quite amazing that day because, you know, so that first period out, he only had four hours and, and I thought, that's really cruel. You know, first mm. time out of prison for a decade and you kind of, you only have four hours. And, and the drive from Perimera to Tuckman. It took up a bit of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's right. right there. And, but after two and a half hours, um, all his nerves were coming back. And it was, right. you know, and it's that thing of institutionalisation, whatever the word is. Mm. Um, you know, he, not having the context of, of the the walls around you, of the prison routine, of, yeah. of when you're going to be locked down and actually having the ability to kind of be out in the public and just walk away was freaking them out. Mm. It was, it was so, so after about like sort of claustrophobia in a way, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah kind of the, the reverse. Yeah. 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 Um, so after three hours, he was sort of saying, can we go? And right. um, yeah, it kind of gradually, you know, bit by bit as he had more home leave and, and got a taste for coming back into the real world. Mm. So by the time he actually got paroled, um, you know, his first, job after he was paroled was um, out at Waiheke Island and um, he was working on a building site out there, and um, which was actually the Waiheke Island resort being renovated. So, oh, yeah. um, and and the, all the workers were sort of staying in the resort while it was being renovated. So he kind of went from Purimurimo Unit 6 to Waiheke Island to Resort. And, resort. <laughs> and, and, and that was pretty good. But um, yeah, but I, I think, it's, you know, he's, he's always going to have, he's always going to have challenges and, 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 and definitely, you know, I mean, what um, a thing that really amazed me as I got to know him initially while he was still in prison was kind of the lack of trade training that he'd been, you know, twenty years inside. Shit, you get a, a, any, you get a mechanics yep. ticket, you get any kind of. He'd really sort of not been given any trade training whatsoever to bring, and he's a really hard worker. Like since, since he's been out, he's been working. Um, in building sites and you know he's he's he wants to get his head down and just get a job done and, mm. and but shit you know you know along with the other challenges that our legal system has certainly uh re getting getting beyond prison being just a university where uh you know, lawbreakers teach other lawbreakers to be better lawbreakers. Right. It'd be really good if we could teach them something else to bring out into, into the yeah into the world when they come out. I mean, I've, yeah. I, I've pretty much always assumed that that was there, that they were getting taught trades and, you know, that the education was being advanced and so on. So you're saying it's lacking, actually. It's, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm definitely not sure that it's as well organised and as it should be, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And do you think that Tim McKinnell will ever be officially recognised as a hero? Yeah, uh, um, I certainly. Yeah, I, he so deserves. I mean, it's it's very interesting. All the people involved in the case in different ways. For instance, the two detectives who questioned Tana have both been recognised by the Queen. 
Um, really? <laughs> for other work? Oh, for uh, the work for, no, for, yeah, for, for well, right. hopefully for other work, uh, yeah, for, right. the, for the career's Jesus. work. And, um, and certainly, you know, to, Tim, you know, he is a New Zealand hero. And, yeah. yeah. Great. And I'm, I'm assuming that he'll play a part in the dramatic uh, film to come. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a, Tana's story is inextricably linked to Tim's story. Right. Yeah. And so um, what are some other things that you're working on that you can talk about that are in development for you? Yeah. Um, so I'm working on my second book, which is um, kind of bizarrely, it's a graphic novel that I'm doing with Aunt Sang. Um, huh? It's a time travel uh, time travel girl power. Uh, is it the Go-Go Ninjas? Yes, Go-Go Ninjas. <laughs> um, it's an extremely cool uh, project, and it's, it's based on a, a movie script of mine. So... Um, um, uh, really beautiful little story about a woman who has to, who's kidnapped through time to try and fix up with what her scientist husband did um, to screw up the world basically. Right. And so it's time shuttling back and forth and, um, and just working with Aunt Sang, like um, who, you know, who's an amazing uh, graphic novelist who did Dharma punks and uh, shell and burning and a bunch, bunch of other stuff. And he, he was kind of the illustrator for uh, Bro Town. Um, right. Uh, and working, you know, I mean, it's kind of like film in a way, but it's it's sort of like, uh, you know, because it's not a moving image, it's like a film with just stills. And, and yes, yeah, so it's like a kind of a storyboard, really. And and seeing how how Ant, you know, when we break down a scene or um, about how to tell the story, how he picks the absolute perfect image, like right. it's beautiful, it's amazing to watch. Yeah, um, yeah. the one image that's sums up a whole sequence or something like that yeah um yeah so that's a that's a that's a really cool project i'm working on kind of an amazing film which is about which is set in the the that period of um i guess not first contact between uh english and maori but i guess the next stage where um uh just as christianity was taking hold where Māori were starting to adopt Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of a film about the twilight of cannibalism in Utu in New Zealand. Um, and it's an amazing story. Um, right. um, Which isn't it, talked I, about much. No. I mean, kind of, it's always fascinated me that period because, I mean, you know, in... So I come from Rotorua, um, so I'm Te Arawa, and um, my grandfather was the first bishop of Aotearoa, and he, and he, a church that the the church that he's buried under, um, he's buried in, inside underneath the pulpit of Saint Faith's, on, which is down on the waterfront in, in Rotorua, where the church is built, it used to be called Te Hairinga, which means uh, the cutting, because um, back in the day when when Te Arawa uh, was defending. Rotorua from invading tribes. Um, you know, once there'd been a scrap and Te Aro had won, the um, the vanquished enemy were kind of cut up on that section of land, right? Oh. And and then uh, cooked. Um, and so, what has always blown my mind is that within maybe maybe two decades of that time, you know, with the arrival of Christianity and uh, that that place had moved from that a place of cannibalism and or to to a place of Christianity and where the where this church was built, mm. and that was kind of a common thing across New Zealand. Really, you know, Maori, um, we 
grabbed hold of Christianity very readily. Mm-hmm. Um, and a thing that, uh, um, a, theory, a theory that has been put forward for that, which I find really convincing, is that Utu had sort of spun out of control so incredibly badly that, right. you know, there was this kind of um, uh, cultural logic that, of... of Repayment for for so, an offence, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. For, you know. So it, it, if you're like a very narrow sense of the word, yeah, 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 and it's about um, you know, I guess restoring order and restoring balance. So if something if you've been wronged, you have the right to to wrong back. And, and, but there's frequently what that turns into is sort of an escalation cyclical. Yeah, yeah, um, like the Middle East mm-hmm. and. And what I find really convincing is that, you know, Christianity um, uh, gave a logic, a logic about um, forgiveness mm. that, um, that kind of provided a way out that, you know, that in many ways I think we were kind of thinking that this is spinning out of control, especially because the muskets have arrived as well. Now we can actually get our revenge times five. And, right. and, 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 and so, so the adoption of Christianity was extraordinarily quick but but um but another thing i think that comes back to my grandfather's church down at the waterfront saint face is that um that yes christianity was you know was uh was adopted and and taken hold of because of the things that it gave as a as a as a way forward socially to so that we weren't, weren't going to exterminate each other yeah um but there's a pulpit in that church in in our church that is it's a beautiful pulpit. It's got um, uh, it's carved with amazing Christian symbolism, and you know the cross and the feather and the dove. And mm. um, but underneath, if you look really closely, there's these thirteen little figures around the bottom holding up the pulpit, and they're the demigods. So they're the the original Maori right. gods. Okay. Oh, wow. And so the symbolism of that is yes, we're taking on Christianity. Yes, we're uh, that's now part of our culture mm. but yes it's entirely based on what was always there before so right. we're taking christ in but we're he's been added to our pantheon yeah and, yeah right. yeah it sounds like it could be quite a controversial yeah film. yeah i think so especially um, if some of those subjects aren't like people don't like talking about some of that stuff now yeah yeah but i think no i think it's um, um it's a part of a history that's just not explored because i think people are afraid to go there yeah. and and it's we just had, you know, it's an extremely rich and, and you know, our, our colonising experience was unique to anywhere in the world. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, if we're afraid to tell that story, it's a, it's a real shame. And it yeah. occurs yeah. to me that Christians have their own version of cannibalism with the taking of the sacrament, don't they? In yeah. a way. Christians yeah. have a lot to answer for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But let's not get into that. But, but yeah, I guess, yeah. Absolutely yeah. right. So um, I sort of wanted to end on a light note because we're getting sort of yeah. um, getting through there. Um, if what of one film that's made in history, what which one would you have liked to have been the director or the writer of, and made and why? Mm-hmm. Wow, well, an interesting question. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's great. Um, um, I mean, Taxi Driver is always oh, wow. good man. Yeah, <laughs> great movie. You know the. Um, that incredible deep diving into a 
in, you know, into the darkness that resides in all of us and yeah. how that kind of, uh, you know, I mean, the amazing way that Scorsese and Schrader, um, Schrader, Paul Schrader, the writer, because um, it's kind of his story. Um, what, he, he was Travis Bickle? Kind of. Paul yeah. Schrader writing this. Okay. So, <laughs> taxi driver. Well, when he wrote the film, he was sort of sitting in his... Uh, um, sitting in this room in New York City uh, with a pretty bad addiction, I think, and um, and spinning out of control. And um, so it was, you know, I think if every, every writer will say, tell you that everything that you do is autobiographical. You just hide it really well. Right. Sure, right. Yeah. <laughs> or you embellish it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think Schrader maybe <laughs> wasn't, it was very, very close to, um, without the killing bit. But um, <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> so that deep diving into like a troubled psyche, but but also that incredible way that you know, it's almost like Macbeth. You know that they take you. Schrader takes you step by step along his path, where he sees. You know, he's fought in Vietnam. He's come back. You know, he's he's fought to to um, he's fought for his country and he comes back and all he can see is the sewage on the seats on the streets of yeah. you know teenage hookers and pimps and drug users and 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 you know he like undermines so, what he fought for sort of thing and he feels so powerless and he yeah. doesn't know how to change this how to stop this flow and then and then and then a solution comes to him in the form of a gun and and it's almost like the way they take you step by step down this path of of how he gets to his solution um you know like Macbeth walking down that path you know Lady Macbeth taking him and saying mm. you know yes you're a fine king of Scotland and yes but you've got to become more powerful and then mm, this is a right. good thing to do and this is and and taxi driver kind of takes you along to the point where yeah, I understand why you want to clean up this vermin. I understand why you want to blow Harvey Keitel yeah. away, and and um, and then and then it actually happens, and you go, shit. What was I complicit with <laughs> right yeah, <laughs> yeah, moment? Right. You know, yeah. Yeah. and what does that say about how my brain works? Yes, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. I think it's an incredible movie. It's and, and my favorite director. Yeah. I heard that the the famous scene where Robert De Niro is talking into the mirror. Um, was not actually planned or scripted, that it was more off the cuff. I, I Is that right? Me. Wow. Yeah, I think you they were... talking to me? Yeah, yeah. 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 And I, I don't remember quite... I think it was something like, just do something. They were just sort of setting a scene, and yeah, I think yeah. Scorsese just said, just do something. Yeah. And De Niro basically just came out with it. Um, and, I, I mean, a question that I had... Um, is something I've noticed over the years, a sort of a, a, a theory or question I've had for a long time, actually, is about um, an actor an actor's performance and, and how some actors we think of as not being very good and other actors we think of as being amazing. I've always assumed that that's very much to do with how they're being directed and then how the editing processes put it all together. Because I've seen films with actors that I really like where they don't come out very well. And do you know what I mean? Mm, and, mm. and I mean, I, I, am I right in thinking that? Mm. I mean, are there some actors that are just so good, you you know, any, any numpty could film them and they'd come out looking good? Yeah, <laughs> and um, the directors that are so bad that they could shoot, you know, a great actor and get it all wrong. Yeah, <laughs> does my film, question make film sense is, as well? Yeah, no, it does. My other question is, does my question make sense? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it totally does. Yeah. Uh, film is this weird alchemy, eh? Like, there's so many things that can go wrong. Like the, the times when it does go right, like yeah. you know, a great actor with a role that 
is really not fleshed out and doesn't make sense and is an incomplete character journey or a kind of, you know, the best actor on earth can't do anything with that. Mm. Um, but I guess the other side of it to me is that, you know, um, most directors I think would say that the most important part of the whole directing performance is the act of casting. Right. As, you know, finding the right person for the role. And, you know, the most wonderful actor isn't necessarily the right one for your role. Mm. Yeah. It's the the person who is right for your role, you know. Mm. And, um, you know, like Harvey Keitel did two weeks on Apocalypse Now and kind of got sacked and because he wasn't right. Martin Sheen was mm. right. And, yeah. and um, um, so, yeah, I mean... F- and then I think, you know, the director's job is to, to build up the set of circumstances around an actor's performance that that um, allows them to do, to inhabit that character mm. to the best of their ability, really. Yeah. yeah. So. What about the editing stage? Yeah, like, no, of course. So, yeah. Because um, um, that's where a lot of the timing is either handled well or badly. And someone yeah. like Scorsese uses the same team quite often, like De Niro and uh, the same direct, uh, same editor, yeah. I forget her name. Yeah. And now he's replaced De Niro with Thelma. Um, DiCaprio. Thelma, that's right. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. DiCaprio is the new De Niro. Thelma Schumacher, I think so, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's right. So I guess the new new breed is coming through. But yeah. that, I guess um, they go back to the well so often because that mm. relationship works so well and you mm. get the performance he needs. But yeah, the editing, she's a massive part in Scorsese's, yeah, yeah. you know, arsenal of uh, lots of tricks, I suppose. Mm. I mean, and you know, I mean, God, the, the those films of the seventies, obviously, it was just an an unbelievable time in filmmaking, and this, you know, the American kind of new wave kind of like. Um, but like, you know, the, what's incredibly exciting right now is is just the, the whole new world that's opening up with new technology. Like, yeah. There was that, I don't know if you saw the film last year, Tangerine, which was all shot on iPhones, which is kind of this beautiful, touching, heartbreaking film about transgender right. characters on the street in Los Angeles. And, um, you know, from, because I was, I got to shoot Cal on 35mm, which was amazing. And, yeah. in, 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 you know, like when we were at film school, it everyone was still, wanted everyone wanted to shoot in 35 and yeah. we were, um, you know, everything was on, was on film. We'd, we'd just got the, you know, the first sort of avid um, came while we were there and, and everyone's mind was sort of blown that we didn't actually have to cut, you know, someday so we wouldn't actually be physically cutting up bits of film. And, yeah. But we all kind of felt, you know, how we, we film can never die because it's so beautiful and rich, mm. and of course it is. But but you know, we, every film that we watch now is digital, and and we don't. Right. You know, it's it, and this iPhone movie Tangerine is beautiful. It's mm-hmm. like you know, it's, it, at the end of the day, film is about character and story. story. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Um, yeah. But the iPhone movie is also beautiful. It actually looks beautiful. It's just a different kind of beautiful. It's a different. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, with digital, my God, there's a film last year called Victoria, which was a German film, which was one of those, you know, there's a bit of a genre of one-take movies. So yeah. the camera starts rolling and it's never cut. And, yeah. and Russian art was so, one of those. Yeah, yeah. Ones. yeah. And most often the ones that I've seen have been an exercise and not particularly dramatically fulfilling. Yeah. But Victoria, you've you got to see it. So it's... it's, it's um, it's one night uh, on in this German town, I think it's Berlin. Um, uh, this woman 
meets some guys and starts to fall in love with a guy, gets caught up in a heist. Um, the police chase them and eventually, oh, I won't, I won't ruin the ending, but it's yeah, a heartbreaking, it's but it's a genuinely beautiful film yeah. um, that, you know, genuinely dramatically unbelievable film, like really truly heartbreaking and engaging and exciting and exhilarating and they go all over the city, they climb up to rooftops, they go down into nightclubs, they get chased by cops. They, um, It's astonishing. And, yeah. and it starts at night and, and as the film's going, daylight rises right. and uh, it's it's all one take and it's extraordinary. So this stuff that we never dreamed of being possible. Mm. But we often talk about that same thing with technology, how um, you know, you've got MP3 and you've got vinyl yeah. and you've got the CD quality and ultimately people are starting to go back to vinyl, it appears, but... But ultimately, it's um, the story you're telling that seems to yeah. be the most compelling thing. Mm. And now with new technology, you've got the 360 thing, which is going to change, I think, the way films are made, where someone can put on a yeah, virtual yeah. head and they'll yeah, yeah. choose their own angles that they want to look yeah, at yeah. in a film and a story being told. Yeah. In regards to your comment about um, films in the 70s, um, my girlfriend and I often um, watch random films would often hunt around online for ideas and then and then track down random films um a lot from of them being from the 70s um i were watching one recently can't for the life remember what it was called but um it had some pretty punchy parts to it some pretty um especially if you if you have the idea that things used to be more conservative and have become less conservative they seem quite risky you know and 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 she was going man that's really surprising i would be surprised to even see that in a film these days yeah yeah and and i i said uh, I don't know if I was right exactly, but I said I think, I think it was actually quite a, a time in film where the boundaries were being pushed. Oh yeah, Shit yeah. Too. And then and then after that, like through the eighties and nineties, it seemed to become more very PG again. Yeah, yeah. And now it seems to be going the other way again. Yeah, yeah. Was it in reaction to the blockbusters? Because Jaws and Star Wars came out then, and then there was the zoetrope film type, um, you know, um, Coppola, the independent uh, Easy Rider. Um, but they were being quite dangerous. Like some of the films in the, even the late sixties, very early seventies, because Star Wars and um, George so Star Wars was mid seventies, wasn't it? That was yeah. Later. So Star yeah. Wars was kind of the end of that American indie mm. new wave kind of thing, wasn't right. it? Like you know, Star Wars happened, and all those big blockbusters then started, mm. and studios became about the bottom line more and more. Right. Whereas okay. so I guess sixties yeah. and seventies, the bottom line, you know, it was this magic time where people went to movies because they were fucking challenging and, and right. incredible and and. Yeah. Whether it be the violence or the, I think the one we saw had a, um, um, a, a just a side plot of a love story between two women, and and I think that was what you know my girlfriend commented on. Like that's surprising, given that all of the revolution that's happened in, for the gay community mm-hmm. um, and their rights and and our perception of them and so on, that's all happened since the seventies. Yeah, yeah, really, isn't it? Well, I guess yeah. it began probably in the eighties. Early, was that right? I look at you, Bobby, because you're the expert yeah, on the, LGBT, um, the history yeah, of the... I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't mind to comment because I have no idea. But I, I think that's um, actually true in music too, that, that there was a there was a maybe 15, 20 years there where the boundaries were getting pushed and that was that was in to break the rules and to see what else there is. And, uh, you know, in many ways, music's become very safe you know, mm-hmm. since then where it needs to fit certain formulas. Mm. Right, mm. I, I think it's probably a good time to wrap it up and, and just, <laughs> just, leave, um, just leave my comment hanging. Yeah, just, just, I, just, I, can't, I can't talk <laughs> about it. it um, where, where can people find out more about what you? I, I went to michaelbennett.co.nz. Is that the main channel? Yeah, um, yeah, no, that's, that's a place. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and ends it on 
Green is, is a great re, um, repository of a lot of great New Zealand stuff that, to go and look at. And is Cow up on YouTube or Vimeo? Um, it's on New Zealand on screen and on my website, yeah. Okay, so, so people um, can watch it in full. Yeah. I recommend people to go and watch that. Um, yeah. 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 <laughs> <So> interesting. <laughs> I really, beautiful, in fact, I really enjoyed this um, conversation. It's extremely cool. Thing. Yeah. Thank yeah, you. Thanks, Thank nice. you very much for doing it. Awesome. Uh, so thanks very much again to Michael Bennett, our wonderful guest today. Yeah, it was an awesome conversation. And thank you to Acoustics Hearing Technologies for being a very loyal and um, supportive sponsor. And thank you guys for supporting us and um, giving us great feedback. We want more of that. Yeah. Be sure to uh, make contact and tell us what you want to hear more of or what you like. Yep, definitely. And uh, like, share and uh, rate us on iTunes. Get us up there in the ratings. Yeah. And um, have yourselves a good week. Good on you. Yeah.